0: Jeff Beal's well-rounded composing career includes concert works performed by many of the world's leading ensembles, including the St. Louis, Rochester, Pacific, Frankfurt, Munich, and Detroit Symphony Orchestras, among others. Beale's commissions with the Metropole Orchestra, Ying Quartet, Debussy Trio, the Henry Mancini Institute, and the Prism Brass Quintet is balanced by his superb film, television, and streaming work, with scores for both dramatic and documentary films such as Appaloosa, Blackfish, and The Queen of Versailles. The 19Time Emmy Award nominee and five-time Emmy winner has written for hit television and streaming shows including Newsroom, Rome, Carnivale, and Ugly Betty, as well as the massively popular House of Cards series. Jeff Beal has now released the Paperline Shack on Super Train Records. The recording features Leonard Slatkin conducting the Eastman Philharmonia, along with the two-time Grammy Award-winning soprano Hila Plitman. We only had 100 daughters
1: and fortune.
0: album also includes the new Hollywood String Quartet performing Things Unseen. Jeff Beal is here with us to discuss The Paperline Shack. Hi Jeff, thanks for joining us on the podcast.
2: My pleasure, Max.
0: Jeff, we'll get to Things Unseen in a bit, but I'd like to start our conversation discussing The Paperline Shack. The deeply personal libretto to this piece chronicles your lineage past and present and was sourced from your great-grandmother Della Hull Singer's memoir. The text was compiled by your wife, soprano Joan Beale. You were struck by Della's writing, which described how she persevered on a 10-acre Idaho farm, and you were inspired to set this compelling story to music.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was one of those kind of just random occurrences, you know? We were packing for a move, there was a box of memorabilia, and out popped this set of pages that my mom, Rosemary, had sent me. I don't even remember when. And I have to credit my wife, Joan, who started reading them, because I knew the story. And we were in the middle of a move, but she said, wow, this is really beautiful What writing. Look at how she describes this moment. Her mother has died and her husband has passed away. Look at how she talks about these things. It was just so beautiful. We thought, yeah, this is incredible. It's like maybe this is an opera or something. So we kind of just forgot about it and got on with our lives and then... Probably, well, 20 years later, I received this commission from Leonard Slatkin for the St. Louis Symphony. It got and it was honoring his 50 years as being assistant, then principal, and then emeritus, conducted with this orchestra, an amazing tenure. I thought about Gila. I knew they had worked together before seeing some of Gila's performed Giancarigliano's Tambourine Man. In fact, I think she won her first Grammy for that piece. And I knew they loved working with each other. Gila had sung on a project of mine recently, about a year prior. And I said, Leonard, what about a piece for a soprano and orchestra? And he was like, that sounds great. So
1: on our band cover.
2: So I needed a text. I wanted a strong character for Hula. And I was thinking about maybe somebody like Malala or somebody like that from current time. And then Joan and I were out on a walk and it just popped in my head and said, hey Joan, what about those pages we read about great Grammar's Della? (laughs) Just sort of the light bulbs went off. identified brief outline what we thought the big most important beats of her life were
1: Christmas.
2: and Joan got to work on scrapping a five movement libretto a picture of this woman's amazing life
0: What was it like to reread your great grandmother's pages some sixty years later?
2: Every time I set music, I have to dig into the text in a deeper level, so I really pay attention, and I really live with the words much longer and figure out the voice of the person, because those are all musical choices. What is this personality? What is this person's attitude? And I guess the thing that I loved about it was the way in which she had a sort of lightness about her life and a sense of humor and also a sense of gratitude and joy and celebration. Of course, getting married and having kids and falling in love. Also the hard stuff, especially this house in Idaho, which she referred to as a paper line shack. I didn't know the picture existed of that shack until after the piece had been written and my second cousin, Jareen sent me this photo, which is now on the cover of the record, but it really is very bare and rugged. And that sense of optimism and wanting to just, we gotta go on, that sense of perseverance, all those things speaking to me through her were really fascinating.
0: As we've discussed, you chose two-time Grammy Award-winning soprano Hila Plitman as your soloist. You're a great writer for voice. Can you talk about putting this together with Hila?
2: Yeah, something about the voice, you know, I'm a trumpet player. My approach to playing trumpet has always been vocal. And of course, my wife Joan is also a fantastic soprano. And when we were both younger, she sang a lot of my works and film scores, and I wrote several concert pieces for her. I love writing vocal music because obviously you have text and you're telling a story. So for me, I think part of what I'm trying to do with every piece I write is to tell a story.
1: My children, I leave you with this story.
2: about hearing Hila and seeing Gila perform is she does them all from memory. She really just inhabits this character, moves around the stage freely, and it almost is like this beautiful one-act opera. Just an amazing arc to it and it's really powerful.
0: the Beal Institute for Film, Music, and Contemporary Media at the Eastman School of Music, it must have been very special to record the Paperline Shack, not only with Leonard Slatkin, but with the Eastman Philharmonia in Kodak Hall.
2: Yeah, and I really have to credit Leonard with so much of this. I mean, none of this would have happened without his help. First of all, obviously, the commission championing my music. Sometimes there is a bit of reticence towards accepting somebody who writes for the screen also in the concert hall. Leonard, his parents were the original Hollywood string quartet. His parents were the concert masters of two different studio orchestras. So aside from the premiere, Leonard brought it to Eastman, and we did a full evening of my music, along with an overture from my film score to Pollock and a piece that he conducted a picture brilliantly. And to his credit, I think before we got there, he said, hey, you know, we should record this while we're there. And I thought, great idea. (laughs) I mean, if it wasn't for that one thing he said, we would not have this recording. And so through the graciousness of the school, we were able to do this. And of course, being an alumni, Kodak Hall is just an amazing, beautiful venue. The orchestra played wonderfully. And we decided to just do the orchestra and then record Hila later, which I thought was a wonderful choice. It would give her more freedom in crafting her performance. And we could control the sound of her voice a little more, make it a little more intimate in terms of the space that we put her in so actually during covid i recorded hila and mixed it, and that's when the piece took on a new meaning for me. It was strange, because I think the thing that originally struck me about Della's writings, life was not as easy as it is for a lot of us now. You know, we have a lot of modern conveniences and ease of moving around, and it seemed really fascinating to me. And then living through COVID and seeing all the hardship that so many people were going through, the whole world was going through, there was a strange kind of symmetry to that. Her words now meant something even different. And there was a sense of encouragement and hope in what she said. And have There's a beautiful connection in her writing to nature. And it's funny, it must be in the DNA, because I love working out on the land and doing stuff. And it just, it's somehow it's therapy for me. I love nature. And the key movement where she loses her, is her husband is called the garden. And she talks all about this garden. And she was in the garden when she heard that her mother had passed lost her husband Franklin suddenly widowed with five kids and a sixth one on the way and she said the sun was shining as I looked out the sweet peas he'd planted that was her husband Franklin were blooming the garden looked the same but everything had changed that's poetry that's just an amazing piece of writing and it's an amazing presence of looking at something clearly and facing it with so much strength no one escapes life without any sort of hardship. None of us are immune to that. So I think the message of the piece for me has always been it's not necessarily what happens to you, it's how you choose to respond.
0: Okay, let's move to Things Unseen. Performed on the album by the New Hollywood String Quartet, the piece was originally composed for the Eastman School of Music's Quartet in Residence, the Ying Quartet. Commenting on this work, you said, Each of the four movements unfold like a balancing act of controlled dialogue and chaos. Ideas are introduced by one player, developed, morphed, and passed around the room much like good dinner party conversation shared amongst friends of course at the time of this commission the ying quartet's personnel was that of four siblings
2: i love to know who i'm writing for and i always freely borrow or steal (laughs) from what i think is some of the interesting qualities of those performers and string quartets by definition are just the perfect musical form it's four voices covers the whole sonic spectrum and they can make a beautiful sound when they're all together But I think it comes from my background as a jazz trumpet player and my own musical taste. I just love counterpoint. We mentioned some of those elements in the song cycle. But of course, in a string quartet, you have this ability to write in a very conversational style. That appeals to me, even though there's not as much of a story that's spelled out. I always think about some sort of story in my head when I'm writing. It's not that I define it literally, but I feel like music is story. Music is speech, it's language. So the fact that they all knew each other so well, they had of knowing each other and knowing each other's playing, that was, of course, joined by DNA and by relationships of not just playing music together all the time, which all great string quartets know each other's personalities really well, but they grew up together. I mean, that's just like a whole nother level of intimacy. ¶¶ One of the interesting things about a string quartet is no matter how much is going on, your ear can always sort of pick out the four voices. Spatially, if they're recorded well, you hear that. You know, cacophony is interesting, but you can have too much of a good thing sometimes. So I felt like I was able to sort of push that, explore that idea of chaos and cacophony mixed with more agreeable conversation. That thing about a dinner party, sometimes there's a conversation over here and it's like you hear two people on the other side of you. It's like, oh, maybe I'll go join this one for a while. There's a way in which the brain, in dealing with complexity and cacophonies, moves through it and finds a way to find these peaks and valleys in conversation and, of course, in music. We design that, and I guess this also comes from a bit of my aesthetic, but because I am a jazz musician, I love the idea of pieces that feel spontaneous and often surprising, but also satisfying and feel like they have a sense of balance and structure. So I think that was one of the things I was playing with in the piece was trying to walk that line between really being structural and having things feel like they had a sense of architecture to them, but also within that sense, having that expansive freedom like one person could just go on and just sort of take a solo or whatever, you know.
0: In terms of the movements, of course, ghosts, angels, spirits, and gnomes all suggest the otherworldly. But I don't think you were writing this from the liturgical perspective. It was more direct.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's not liturgical at all. Although I think there is one thing in the titling of it, aside from the fact that I remember my son who was, I think in middle school at the time, we were getting ready for Halloween. And I thought about how Halloween is such a fun holiday for kids and how something scary is also something that's whimsical or you play with these things. Thought about the imagination and seeing that through my son. And I realized something I love about being a musician and being a composer, especially in the modern world, kind of more of a post-religious society, like music is one of the languages that can still connect us to the more mystical spiritual side of reality and so I was definitely trying to conjure that sense of what you might call an awe or it could be a sense of reverence a sense of awakening to something even larger than yourself in the world I guess that's kind of part of what each of these movements in their own way are striving to describe
0: Okay, let's touch on the different sections that make up things unseen. The piece starts with ghosts. There's a loneliness to this opening.
2: Yeah, it starts with a very haunting solo and I believe in the second violin and it's sort of passed around. The whole group becomes harmony once the different voices enter and I thought about the idea of fear not in an exaggerated or theatrical way but I thought about fear in terms of a chilling feeling. Fear that you have that takes your breath away and you just become quiet. That sort of fear and that sort of stillness and it reminded me a lot of some music I love like I love early music and I also love some of the modern and contemporary composers There's Arvo Pert and Gorecki. a lot of them from Eastern Europe, but they seem to conjure this sense of modality that I love. It's a little more related to what you might call Eastern modality. Those scales I also love as a jazz musician, too. They have some sonorities in them, like Bulgarian women's chorus, for example, those sort of like weird dissonances, but that are somehow so beautiful and so haunting. ¶¶
0: Pick up the pace with spirits.
2: I love odd meters and spirits is mostly in 7-8. The main theme is in 7. It's more like the idea of a spirit that's sort of like maybe moving in the air, the idea of velocity, also rhythm and energy. This is where another side of the piece really starts to assert itself, which is my more jazz, rhythmic language. I love syncopation. I love cross rhythms. So the piece is very difficult to play. And in fact, I think this movement and the final were one of the ones that we worked on the hardest. But when you get all those parts in a locking right, there's just sort of of this wonderful sense of almost like a dance that I think the movie takes on, but it's also sort of walks the line a little bit. It's got some definite nods to mysticism in terms of the tonality, the harmonic language of it.
0: In Angels, you slow it back down and start with the beautifully dissonant chords from the string quartet.
2: I love slow movements and I love Mahler's music, but my favorite parts of all of his symphonies are the slow movements. Let <laughs> me start with this series of two part counterpoint on the viola and the second violin. This is a very classic reference to what people think about in terms of Judeo Christian tradition. You know, heaven is up there and hell is below. And so, really, this is where there's just a very obvious nod to this sort of ascending stratospheric, reaching up to the sky kind of way in which the first violin plays this beautiful melody, which has that sense of flying or wafting up into the clouds. And it grows from there. I tried to do in the quartet also was to feature each instrument in some solos. There's some wonderful solos for the second violin and spirits and first violin is featured very prominently in a sort of a cadenza in Ghost. And in Angels, the cello really has this wonderful solo where after we reach the top of the counterpoint he sort of goes off his own way and defines the new section and everybody comes back to join him. It is very much more traditional liturgical structure, but again, the harmonic choices are more towards a more expansive, occasionally romantic sense of beauty. You know, it's funny, in religious traditions, English, we have the one word love, but in the Greek, there's so many different words for love. And in a way, I feel like angels is really about love, but more like if you were in a Judeo-Christian tradition, you'd call this agape. It's like sacred love. It's like that beautiful, unconditional, and caring, and protection that an angel provides. Angel is sort of like the liaison of the divine, I guess, in some way, right? Whether it's something from somewhere else that comes and helps you. And I think we've all had an experience like that in our life where, you know, it could be just luck or a nice the kindness of another person but that beautiful undeserved grace that comes in the face of something outside of yourself I think that's what this piece is trying to get to emotionally
0: then you finish with the lively and active gnomes
2: Yeah, this was a fun one because I felt like I wanted to have a good finale and a fun finale because it's a long piece and it's a bit introspective in terms of its tone, even in the fast movements that preceded it. But this was much more of a dance, much more of a fun romp in a way. It's in 5-4 and it starts with this violin solo. And again, even more than spirits, the jazz composer me really sort of got to let loose and really write, feel almost like somebody taking a solo in a big band or a pianist comping behind and sort of syncope. Terms.
0: In closing, tell us a bit about working with the new Hollywood String Quartet.
2: They're a fantastic group, and we had a recital with several other composers in Los Angeles and myself of string quartet pieces maybe about seven or eight years ago, and they learned all of these pieces, including this piece, and performed it, and I just thought they were fantastic. At the time, I wanted to find a second half for the recording. Unfortunately, the yin quartet was not available, so I thought, I want to go back to this group who played it so beautifully. They're also amazing sight readers and studio players, and they've all played on various film scores of mine over the years, so I knew they're playing that way, and they're also mostly members of the LA Chamber Orchestra and I had the pleasure of conducting them, so I had a lot of confidence and personal affection for their playing. There's a great connection they have as a group because to Leonard Slatkin, when they chose their name they were all fans of the original Hollywood String Quartet. According to them, many of those older recordings that the Hollywood String Quartet made are still some of the most definitive recordings of some of the most important String Quartet literature, so by calling themselves the New Hollywood String Quartet, they took on that moniker and paid homage to the legacy of Leonard's parents, and their. Ted.
0: Jeff Beale, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast to discuss the paper line shack.
2: My pleasure, Max.